Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We've been in a, uh, a sermon series uh, for some time in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is the story of the earliest Christian churches, uh, the movement that started with just a small group of Jesus' disciples after his resurrection uh, that came to be, over the course of these 28 chapters in the book of Acts, uh, came to be a movement of churches that filled the known world. And this morning, uh, we get to the first of two weeks uh, where we're going to be looking at Paul's ministry in a city called Ephesus. Uh, you may know of Ephesus. It becomes a pretty central uh, city in the biblical story, right? Paul writes one of his letters back to the church at Ephesus. That's the book of Ephesians in your Bible. Uh, in Revelation, uh, one of the letters, in fact, actually all seven of the letters that go to the early churches uh, in those first couple chapters um, are written to churches in and around the area of Ephesus. Ephesus is so important that uh, Luke gives a whole chapter to describing Paul's uh, ministry there. And Paul's ministry in Ephesus, as we're going to see here, I'm going to prepare you, is a little bit wild. Uh, Ephesus was seen as kind of the Wild West of pagan culture in the ancient world. It had a, a temple uh, that was a part of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. It was a center of pagan uh, magic and superstition. And so when Paul goes to Ephesus, we get uh, all sorts of things. You've got an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and miracles and exorcisms and evil spirits and books of magic and riots. Again, it's wild. Um, and it seems like what Luke is doing here, remember that early passage in Acts where he, he, Jesus told the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And every time that the gospel crossed one of those thresholds, when it went from Judea into Samaria, the story slowed down and there was a special care given to showing how some of what happened in Jerusalem repeated there. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There were baptisms. Uh, and now Ephesus seems to be a symbol that this is now the gospel going to the ends of the earth. This is going uh, not to people who are a little bit like the disciples, but people whose ways are very, very strange to the disciples. And so uh, we're going to look this morning, we're just going to read Acts 19 verses 1 through 10. If you're willing and uh, able, would you please stand as we read God's word Again, our reading today is Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. So Paul comes into Ephesus, and we're told that the first thing that he sees is he meets some disciples. He meets this group of disciples in Ephesus, and it becomes clear uh, fairly early on in his interaction with them that they were disciples not of Jesus, but disciples of John the Baptist. Now, we don't know uh, necessarily the story of these men and women, but somehow they were exposed to the ministry of John the Baptist in Israel and then relocated or went back home or whatever back into Ephesus. And so they uh, were baptized by John into his ministry of preparation and repentance. And then they went back and they hadn't heard, right? Remember, so much of John the Baptist's ministry was about pointing beyond himself about saying, look, there's one who is to come. I baptize you with water, but somebody's coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize announcing the kingdom of God is near. One's about to come who is the king of the kingdom. And then they left and went back and never heard the rest of the story. Right? This is like if you, you know, pause a movie halfway through and just move on. It's like if you stopped after Empire Strikes Back and never finished the Star Wars series, which apparently never finishes. And so they were there, baptized into a baptism of repentance, and believing that that was all that there was. Believing that they had done, in response to what God was doing, that they had been obedient, that they had repented of their sin, they'd been purified, they'd been baptized, but they hadn't yet heard that there even was an answer to what John had been looking for, a Holy Spirit who was to come. This, uh, this passage, if you spent any time at all, and we're not going to dwell on this extensively, but if you spent any time at all in Pentecostal churches, uh, this text is often lifted up as one that teaches two baptisms, right? That they were baptized, but that somehow their baptism wasn't a baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they needed another baptism, right? But what, it's not two separate Christian baptisms, it's clear that it's one baptism into John's baptism and then another Christian baptism that's into the name of Jesus and the end full of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So this is the fullness of the baptism, right? This isn't two different stages to the Christian life, a pre-Holy Spirit stage and an after the Holy Spirit stage. This is meant to point us towards the fact that the, the baptism we receive into Jesus is more than just an entrance through repentance, but that it's a receiving of life in God, life in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They receive this baptism. You know, repentance and faith uh, are, are, should be thought of as two sides of the same coin, 
right? When Paul in his preaching or Peter in his preaching preaches about faith, they're always talking about repentance in faith. Sometimes they'll just call people to repent. Remember Peter, when the, when the disciple, when the, uh, when the audience in Acts 2 says, what should we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Right? What he means is repent and believe in Jesus and be baptized. Repentance is a turning away from sin. And faith is a turning towards Jesus. Repentance is an emptying yourself of sin. And faith is a being filled with God himself. Repentance is a letting go of sin. And faith is a taking hold of new life. And faith always involves those two things. I don't care. Uh, you know, Look, in this room, we have people who've come from very different backgrounds, people who've lived very different stories. But for all of us, when our life is disrupted by grace, it requires us to let go of something, doesn't it? To recognize that there's been things in our life that we've clung to as our source of identity and peace and meaning and hope that now we have to let go of. And to take hold of Jesus as the one who answers uh, the longings of our heart, the, the, the longings we have for grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and peace. And these disciples had learned that the life that God wanted was a life of repentance. They had let go, but they hadn't taken hold of anything. They had been emptied, but they hadn't yet been filled. They had turned away from sin, but they didn't yet know what it is they were supposed to be turning towards. Imagine the joy that Paul got to feel in saying, whoa, wait, wait, hold on, what? Y'all did all of the hard work of letting go of sin, of leaving your life of repentance, but you don't know yet of the joy of the good news. You've heard the bad news of sin, but you haven't yet received the good news of Jesus. Their life, their spirituality had been focused purely on repenting of sin and not of being filled with joy in Christ. You know, this, uh, this can still happen to us. I doubt there's anyone in this room that stopped reading the gospel after John the Baptist, right? Most of you probably uh, know about repentance, but also have heard about Jesus. But there is a tendency that can creep in the, into the Christian life that puts most of our focus on what we're letting go of instead of the one who's taken hold of us. Dallas Willard, a great uh, theologian and teacher, recently passed. He refers to this distortion of the Christian life as the, uh, the gospel of sin management. That, that, that your life in God is primarily about overcoming sin. That your, your life in God is primarily about what you're letting go of. So it leads to an introspective focus on sin. And now look, some of that is good, right? I don't like to, there's a part of me that doesn't want to think about my sin, my addiction, my patterns, my habits, all of those things. So there's a, a necessary part of the gospel that says, no, look at your sin. Look at the ugliness that's inside you and repent of it, lay it down. But if you stay there and don't move on to, there's a reason you're letting go of this stuff. It's because something better has come. You're letting go of this road. You're leaving this road that led you only to emptiness so that you can get on a road that's going to lead you to fullness and abundance and life in God. Remember, 
what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother, wife or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus said to his disciples is, look, from the perspective of eternity, what you have let go of is going to pale in comparison to what you receive. That yes, there is a letting go, there is a repentance that's necessary to be my follower. But that's meant to empty your hands so that you can take hold of a life of so much blessing. These disciples knew a kind of perversion of Christianity that was without Christ, that was without the fullness of what Christ offers. Steve Brown, one of my seminary professors uh, who has a radio show, if anybody ever listens to that, used to give sometimes the devastating feedback to young preachers. We had the In seminary, you do this weird and awkward and terrifying thing where you preach to other seminarians and then also to professors, and they grade you on your preaching. Um, And he used to, I've heard him say, and it wasn't the first time he said it, he'd tell somebody, that was a wonderfully written, eloquent, and moving sermon that could have been preached in any synagogue in America. And what he meant was, it was true, it was faithful to the text of the Bible, it was ethical, but there was no Jesus in it, that it lifted up a false hope that you can be good enough, right? That you can obey enough, you can be careful enough. And so let's look at the way that Paul introduces Christ to these people and to what happens when they step into not just the emptiness of John's repentance, but into the fullness of what Christ brings. First, we see that they are baptized into a new identity. Paul asked, who are you baptized into? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Greek there really literally means they were baptized into the name of Jesus. Right, look, John's baptism, we we think... Uh, that John wasn't the only one, he wasn't the first one uh, in Israel to practice baptisms. He's certainly the one that's highlighted in the New Testament. But that baptism had become a symbol uh, of washing and purification, right? Just like uh, in the Old Testament, in order for something to become holy, in order for the implements of worship to be used in the temple to be made holy, they had to be washed. That baptism was a symbolic action that symbolized the washing away of sin. It was a symbol of saying, God, forgive me, wash away my sin. And so baptism, though it was an important element of John's ministry, it was one of washing. It was a symbol of repentance and renunciation and purification. They were discipled into John's baptism. But what John never said, what John never offered anyone, was to be baptized into John. Right? He didn't use the language of, you have to be baptized into me. He said, look, you have to be baptized as a symbol, as a sign, as an external picture. But then Jesus uses this different language, that they're to be baptized into Jesus, into his name. Paul baptizes them, not merely symbolically, to say, this is like you're getting washed, this is like you're getting purified. 
He says he's baptizing them into the name, into the person of Jesus. Baptism in the Christian sense, there is a symbolic element to it, right? It does symbolize some stuff, washing, purification, death, and life. But it's more than a symbol, right? We believe that baptism doesn't merely symbolize something, but that it does something, that it is something, that it marks something, that we are baptized into Jesus himself, right? In Matthew 28, when Jesus commands the disciples to go and to be his witnesses, baptizing people into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What he's commanded to do is to go and share the gospel and then baptize, include, and engraft people into the very life of God himself. That when, when people are baptized into Christ, they're baptized and become children of the Father, become uh, siblings in Christ, and become filled with the Holy Spirit. That baptism enacts this new life with God. It's symbolic, but it's never merely symbolic. Baptism brings us, remember that, that beautiful scene. It's one of my favorite pictures in the gospel when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. Right, Jesus comes up out of the water. The voice of the Father speaks out audibly, this is my beloved Son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends as a dove on Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? Right? For Jesus, it certainly wasn't a baptism of repentance. It wasn't because he needed purification. Right? It wasn't because he needed anything to be washed. We believe that Jesus was baptized in order to sanctify baptism so that we are baptized actually into Jesus' baptism. That we're, when we're baptized, it's like the voice of the Father speaks over us. This is my son. This is my daughter. In them, I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends and fills our lives with his presence. That we become filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the reasons, you know, we, we did a little bit of work earlier saying, you know, this isn't two baptisms, it's one baptism, right? It's not that you're baptized once and then you have to be baptized again later to receive the Holy Spirit. But we can see why some confusion comes out of this passage, right? That there is a baptism, but then what seems to be in a separate action, Paul lays his hands on them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with these gifts like fell at Pentecost, of being able to speak in other languages, of being able to teach prophetically. And so one of the things that can be difficult as we read uh, the New Testament, particularly Acts, is that there's always four things that mark conversion in Christ, right? There's always repentance and faith, there's always baptism, and there's always a filling of the Holy Spirit. Those four things are always happening when someone comes from death to life. Now, remember, these are first-generation believers, so these are all converts, so we're not talking about covenant baptism of children at this point. But what we're looking at is at conversion, four things happen. Repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they happen in unusual orders, right? But they always come together. 
We can look uh, at different stories. Sometimes the signs of the Spirit's presence are, are given at baptism, at Pentecost in Luke 2, and La- in, uh, I'm sorry, in Acts 2, in Acts 8, as they're gathered in Cornelius' home, in Acts 10, as they go. And then uh, sometimes the gifts of the Spirit appear after baptism, like when the gospel comes to the Samaritans and then again here. And so when we see that kind of strange ordering, we should say, you know, we shouldn't make too much out of the the moments where these things come and what seems to be out of order. What we should pay attention to is the fact that these four things always mark new life in Christ. Repentance, faith, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we see that there is a normative ordering of those things, right? That That the Spirit comes on our lives in order to empower people to repent, to believe, to be filled with the Spirit, and then to be baptized. That's the ordinary way that it works in the New Testament. But the Spirit uh, comes on them, and He fills them as they're baptized, as they're baptized and included in Christ. We, when we're baptized, receive this new identity, a new identity grounded in the love of the Father, knit together in union with the Son, and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you take hold of when you believe the gospel, when you believe in Jesus. You become this new person, a child of the Father filled with the Spirit, joined to Christ. In Christ, there's always this letting go of and this putting on, this emptying and being filled. I love the words of Ephesians chapter 4 in light of this story. So this is Paul writing to the same church. And he's saying to them, basically, look, you shouldn't live as your pagan neighbors live. And then he says this, he says, that's not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him. I love that little aside after Paul had preached them, like, look, I know you said you hadn't heard of the Spirit. Assuming you've heard of Christ, you shouldn't live that way. As you are taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through sinful, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. To put on the new self, to remember who you are in your baptism, child of the Father, joined to Christ and filled with the Spirit. And that's the second thing we want to talk about is what it means for them to be filled with the Spirit. You know, we've done our, our thing of saying that it's, it's not a second baptism, It's not another filling. It's not a two-stage Christian life. But we shouldn't move on from this passage without saying the Christian life, the ordinary, everyday Christian life, is meant to be a life filled with the Spirit's power and presence. Right? It's easy as Presbyterians to say, well, look, we know, okay, it's not two baptisms, it's one baptism, let's just move on. But... There really is a Holy Spirit that's ours by faith, that's a gift of the Father, that's poured out into our lives, that fills us. And if it's not two baptisms necessary, if it's not a two-stage Christian life, then that means that for every one of us, a supernatural relationship with the Holy Spirit is a part of what it means to be a Christian, to be filled with the very presence of God himself poured out on us is a part of what it means to be a Christian. This is, uh, we think, what's going on uh, 
remember we mentioned that, that Luke repeats three times the story of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, and then when the gospel goes into Samaria, and now when it comes into Ephesus. And so what we think Luke is trying to tell the people that he doesn't want them to miss is that the same Holy Spirit that fell on the apostles at Pentecost fell on the Samaritans in Samaria and now falls at the Gentiles at Ephesus. That is, he's going to go on to say there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that we're knit together by one Holy Spirit. Both the Samaritans that the Jews despised, guess what? They're filled with the same Spirit. The Gentiles, who seem so strange and foreign, guess what? Filled with the same Spirit. That the Spirit is poured out on the whole church with the same signs, equipped and empowered to proclaim the gospel. His first hearers say, we've never heard, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. He asked, have you heard the Holy Spirit? We didn't even know that was a thing. We didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? Now you can't say that. You've heard that there is one. You can't say, listen, we're Presbyterian. We didn't know there even was a Holy Spirit. That it's a normal part of all of our lives to dwell in the Spirit and to rely on the Spirit's power in our lives. You know, for these, for these believers who are only baptized into John and didn't even know the Spirit, Paul says you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be baptized into Christ and to receive the Spirit. Later on, when he's writing to people who are already in Christ, he still is telling them. He's using different language. He's saying, uh, keep in step with the Spirit, don't quench the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. But it's the same idea that you're to live your life in reliance on the Spirit's power. Not on our own strength, but on the Spirit's power to live within us, to live through us, to witness in us and through us to tap daily into the power source that we've been given in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. I had a, a strange trip. A couple weeks ago, I went with my oldest son's sixth grade class to Washington, D.C. Um, it was great. I survived. Uh, 50 12-year-olds running loose in D.C. Um, well, they included an outing after we went to D.C. We went to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, into Amish country. Because nothing screams 12-year-old boys will love this, like watching Amish people churn butter. Uh, so we go into Amish country, and it was, it was a whole other thing. We can talk more about it later. It was wild, surreal. But you're driving through Amish country, and I had this idea that all Amish people lived in like little tiny houses they built themselves. But some of these folks, guys, have some big houses. Some of them are successful farmers. And they, and, and apparently there's no, they can't have uh, electricity, but they can have a big house. Uh, their clothes can't have snaps on them, but they can have, you know, a six bedroom house uh, that looks out over this beautiful countryside. And one of the things our tour guide told us, which was fascinating, is because these uh, Amish people who don't connect their houses to the power grid, uh, because they don't want to be limited to only be able to sell their house to other Amish buyers someday, they wire the house for electricity, and they just don't hook it up. Can you imagine growing up in a house where there's an electrical plug, but you can't stick anything in it that does anything? Right? That there's no power running into uh, the house at all. Listen, as people made in the image of God, you are made to be wired and connected into a power source. 
You are made to live in vital union with God himself. And it's foolish, isn't it, to take this, this, this self that you have that's wired to live with God and to live separate from the power grid. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it's a divinely given power for living our life in Christ, a life that you were never meant to live under your own steam. This is why we can say with hope that you can grow and change in your Christian life. Right? Because the gospel isn't simply that you're forgiven of your sins. Right? Praise Jesus that it is that. Right? That as, as miserable and weak and puny and lost as we are, that we are forgiven and set free. The gospel is the gospel of your forgiveness. But the gospel is also your power to overcome a life of sin. Right? It's not just that you're forgiven from sin's guilt. It's also that you're empowered to overcome sin's enslaving power in your life. That you can be transformed, that the gospel is the good news of the Spirit given to empower us for new life. And so, uh, baptized into a new identity, filled with a new spirit, and then representing a new kingdom. Look at what happens in 198. He entered into the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul's message was the message of the kingdom of God, right? The message that John the Baptist spoke about looking forward, repent and be baptized because the kingdom is near. The message that Jesus preached, believe because the kingdom of God is here, it's among you. Paul preached after the fact, saying the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom has come. The king has come. There's a new life, a new citizenship that comes as God's kingdom pushes back the kingdom of evil in this world. The good news, the most common shorthand that's used in the Bible for the good news in Jesus' ministry was the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, the phrase good news comes from a place in Isaiah where he says, uh, blessed are the feet, right, of those on the mountains that proclaim the good news, the gospel, your God reigns, right? Again, the gospel, not simply you're forgiven of sin, but God has become king. The God who made you is, is restoring all things under the reign of his son, that the kingdom is here and it's come in Jesus. And everywhere that Paul goes as he announces this kingdom, a little bit of the darkness of the kingdom of darkness gets peeled back to make room for the kingdom of God's reign coming in Christ. We get a really strange story after this one. In brief, what happens is they, the, you know, Paul's around preaching uh, this good news of the kingdom Amazing things are happening through Paul's ministry. People are being healed. People are being set free. Demons are being cast out. And then these 12 guys who are described to us as the 12 sons of Sceva uh, were Jewish magicians who didn't believe in Christ. But they think to themselves, hey, there seems to be power when people say the name of Jesus. Just like, remember Simon the magician when the gospel went into Samaria. Now these 12 sons of Sceva say, hey, we like power. We're magicians. We're going to start using this name of Jesus in order to do stuff. 
Maybe it's like a magic word. Maybe saying Jesus is like saying abracadabra. And so they go to a demon-possessed man, and they use the name of Jesus to try to cast out this demon. But then 9.15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mentioned that Ephesus was kind of wild. So they believe that Jesus, they recognize that there's power in Jesus' name, but they mistake that power for magic, something that can be just enlisted. But what we learn here is even the demon recognizes that the name of Jesus isn't about just the name, it's about submission to authority. Right? It's about Jesus' authority. Paul had brought his life under the kingdom of Jesus, under his authority. But these guys hadn't. The name of Jesus meant nothing to them except for a rabbit's foot. Because the kingdom, the kingdom that expels the works of darkness, the kingdom that drives out sin and despair, the kingdom uh, that makes whole everything that's been broken by sin, only goes forward as people bow their knees and their hearts to the kingship of Jesus, to say Jesus is king of my life, of this area, of every part of my life. I'm submitting my life to the kingship of Jesus. Something amazing happens as this story becomes known about the 12 beaten and naked and shamed uh, sons of Sceva as this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We think what's going on here is that there's a, there's a story um, in the early chapters of the Pentateuch and the stories of uh, both Exodus and Joshua. When the people, remember, are set free from Egypt, they're led through the, through the wilderness, they come into the promised land. And then they begin to engage in holy war, right? They begin to take the land that had belonged uh, to others because now it was going to be their land. And what happened was, is the as, as Israel went into the land, the treasures of that land would be laid at their feet and burned, right? They weren't just to steal stuff. They were to take the, the idols. They were to take the gold and the silver that had been dedicated to those pagan gods, and they burned them as a way to say, this land now belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Baal. It doesn't belong to those Canaanite deities anymore. And so we think that's what's going on here is that as the kingdom comes into Ephesus, they say, look, the kingdom doesn't, this no longer belongs to idolatry, to paganism, to these other kingdoms. This is now, we're submitting ourselves to the kingdom of Jesus. And that's part of what we lay hold of when we place our faith in Christ. We do become, we receive Christ and a new identity and a new power and this new purpose that calls us, up, calls us to make Christ's kingdom visible everywhere that he sends us. To say in our home and in our neighborhood and in our workplace, 
We're trying to be a representative of another kingdom, no longer the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, but the kingdom of God and his light and his reign. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to live our lives not simply letting go of that which you've called us away from, but taking hold of all that you've given us, taking hold of this beautiful life in Christ that you've made ours, receiving this new identity that we're baptized into, receiving this new spirit that fills us and animates us, and receiving this new call to live our lives as citizens and ambassadors of your kingdom coming on earth, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.